Welcome to Manna for Breakfast, the daily Bible reading devotional which chronologically takes you through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation in one year. Grab a cup of coffee and your Bible and join us as we journey together through God's Word. Good morning, everyone. Nice to have you with us. I should say Renee is over there doing a lot of stuff. Nice to have you with us. We are pressing on into Job today, Job 38 through 40. Hopefully, you've had a chance to follow us so far in Job because it's a fascinating, fascinating read, especially if you've ever gone through or are going through the kind of experiences Job has. I don't think, I think it's safe to say nobody's gone through what Job's gone through. Um, that at least in what in our sphere of the world, but that's pretty pretty amazing. God's faithful in all in all things. That is where we are at in our story. We're up to thirty eight, where he's gone through everything he could possibly go through, and he's been arguing with these friends of his. Now we're finally to the point where God's going to speak. God's been listening to all this, and Job's been trying to defend himself, but still not convinced that it's not God that's making his life miserable. He doesn't understand he's, it's really Satan, even though God's allowing that, but it's he's not understanding why. And God is now going to speak and try and get them to get their minds in a set in the right direction. So let's go and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and again for your word. May you guide us and... Give us the understanding we so long for, God, as we read through your word. In Jesus' name. Chapter 38 of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man. And I will ask you, and you instruct me, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who set its measurements, since you know, or who stretched the line on it, or what were its bases sunk, and who and who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it, and set a bolt and doors. And I said, Thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Verse 12, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? And cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the depth? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I have reserved for the time of distress, for the day of war and battle, 
Where is the way that the light is divided? Or the east wind scattered on the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the flood? Or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land without people? Or a desert without a man in it? To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb has come the ice and the frost of heaven? Who has given it birth? Water becomes hard like stone, and the surface of the deep is imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Or do you know the ordinances of the heaven or fix their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightning that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inmost being or given understanding to the mind? Who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens? When the dust hardens into a mass and the clods stick together, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite for the young lion? When they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair, who prepares for the ravens its nourishment when its young cry to God and wander about without food? Chapter 39. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months they fulfill? Or do you know that they give birth? They kneel down, they bring forth their young. They get rid of their labor pains. Their offspring become strong and they grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return to them. Who sent out the wild donkey free and who loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city, and the shouting of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his pasture and searches after every green thing. Will the wild donkey consent to serve you, or will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind the wild ox in a furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valley for you? Will you trust him because his strength is great and leave your labor to him? Will you have faith in him that he will return your gain and gather it from your threshing floor? The ostrich's wings flap joyously with the pinion and the plumage of love. And she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them in the dust. And she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, she is unconcerned because God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. Verse 18. When she lifts herself on high, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you cloak his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, the flashing spear and javelin. With shaking and rage, he races over the ground, and he does not stand still at the voice of the trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he sends the battle from afar. And the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the cliff he dwells and lodges on the rocky crag, an inaccessible place. From there he spies out food. 
His eyes see it from afar. His young ones also suck up blood. And where the slain are, there is he. Chapter 40, Job. What can I say? Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered and said to the Lord, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer. Even twice, and I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowing of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud, and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud, and humble him, and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden places. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. Verse 15, Behold now, Behemoth, which I made as well as you, he eats grass like an ox. Now behold, he has strength in his loins, and his power is in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar, his sinews and his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs are like bars of iron. He is the first of the ways of God. Let his maker bring near his sword. Surely the mountains bring him food, and all the beasts of the, of the field play there. Verse 21, Under the locust plants he lies down. In the covert of the reeds and the marsh, the locust plants cover him with shade. The willows of the brook surround him. If the river rages, he is not alarmed. He is confident, though the Jordan rushes to his mouth. Can anyone capture him when he is on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? Interesting, this last animal that they're talking about. The Bible commentators will tell you it's the alligator. Um, I think it's much more than that. I think there was some very interesting creatures alive at the time of Job, dinosaurs, and um, the Bible talked a lot about the Leviathan and the behemoth, and um, and there is some evidence that it may well have been a, a dragon. And so you've got, I don't know, I'm not going to make any definitive answers, I'm just saying, so we look at these things, we generally like to just pass it off as something common, but there were some amazing creatures alive <laughs> when man was alive, and secular science doesn't want to go there because it messes their model of evolution. So there was tracks in a riverbed in Texas of a man, a man's footprints behind a dinosaur's pr- footprints, and people looking into that say it looks like he was tracking the dinosaur. It messed with the model so bad that somebody, some well-intentioned evolutionist, I guess, came and destroyed all of the footprints. And these were, you know, fossilized. We would say they were imprints in a rock. And they chiseled out all the footprints. Very sad. All right, what's going on in Job here? God is finally speaking. And to sum it up, we have a Bible uh, verse that really sums it up the best. Be still and know that I am God. This is what God is trying to get Job to do. Now, Job has already expressed his high regard and his respect for God, but in a limited fashion. He's not completely yielded over to the lordship we should say, of Yahweh, that you are Lord, and whatever you do, I know it's for you for the right reason. And you are not cruel, and you don't enjoy 
punishing me. You don't enjoy making my life miserable. You must have a purpose and a plan. He's not there yet. So God is humbling him and challenging him with this idea of wisdom. So Job, you think you've, you're wise and you have wisdom, then explain this to me, you know, and he goes through all this list. Where were you in creation? Where were you with all this? And you look at what he says is God is saying, I'm the one that has control over all the heavens. I'm the one that has control over the earth and how the earth functions. I have control over the animal kingdom, how the animal kingdom functions, how everything is brought about, how there is life and there is regeneration. And all of these things, Job, I'm the one who created and I'm the one who has control. Therefore, if you think you're wiser than me and want to challenge me on your righteousness and why you shouldn't be suffering and all these things, bring it on. Go ahead. Put on your your robes, put on your, sit on your throne and try and tell me if you have attained to the divine wisdom and understanding, basically. And, of course, Job is like, wow, I'm sorry. And now he's beginning to get the picture. And he understands that he is just the creation. He is the pot, not the potter. And so he's just beginning now, and we're going to get the last two chapters where we're going to get more into this. And Job is basically going to get the answer that you, you need to trust me. Job, I'm not going to tell you why I'm doing everything why I'm doing everything I'm doing, but I'm telling you you need to trust me. Period. And that's often what the answer we get. I mean, that is I should say that is always the answer we get. God doesn't give us the whys all the time uh, that we'd like to have, but he does give us the understanding that he is Lord and he is our redeemer and our, our savior and we can't trust him. Matthew 15, now the rest of the chapter, verse 21 to 39. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. Verse 29 Departing from there, Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee, and having gone up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled restored, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Verse 32, and Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I feel compassion for people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away. Hurry, or they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where would we go get so many loaves in this desolate place to satisfy such a large crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves of fish and giving thanks, he broke them and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. 
and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And sending away the crowds, Jesus got into the boat and came to the region of Magadan. Uh, it's always amazing to me how forgetful these disciples are. Didn't they already feed 5,000? <laughs> With less? And they're still wondering where they can go buy the bread? I Maybe they're just trying not to be presumptuous. I mean, that's probably a, a wise thing. Although, they would probably, they should have probably just answered and said, Lord, you know where we can get the bread. You show us. Uh, but be that as it may, I think the point here, we have these two occasions where at one time he feeds 5,000. And of course, again, that's men uh, plus women and children. So there's a lot more than 5,000 the first time and a lot more than 4,000 the second time. But the idea is, besides the healer, Jesus is healer. We see him healing all these people that come to him. He's also the good shepherd. He leads his sheep to green pasture, and he feeds them. The outward feeding here is a symbol of the inward feeding he was giving them. We're supposed to correlate that. Jesus comes, and he speaks of the kingdom of God. He teaches them. He is feeding them the manna from heaven, and in so doing, he has them feed them bread miraculously. And where does the bread come from? It comes down from heaven. So again, we're supposed to draw the analogy that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the food. And uh, I don't know sim uh, idiomatically about the fish, although it is interesting that the fish then later become a symbol of Christianity. But he's certainly the bread. There's a lot of typology there. And he is the bread that comes down from heaven. And he is... The, he has a heart of a good shepherd that wants to feed his people and take care of them. He has a compassion for them. And we see this as well with the uh, Syrophoenician woman. He goes up to Tyre and Sidon. That's outside of, of Israel, really. There, he's up in kind of north, way north of Israel, not too far north, but north. And so she's not Jewish. And he tells her, hey, I've come to the lost sheep of Israel. I haven't come to Gentiles. Now, we know he came for all mankind, but he has to, he's painting the picture that he's coming first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And all of this is to fulfill prophecy and also to demonstrate her faith. Uh, when, when he, re, you know, refuses her, ignores her, and she keeps crying out, and then he tells her, hey, it's not good to give <laughs> bread to the dogs. You would think, man, that is the most insulting, cruel thing that you could say because dogs were unclean. The whole point was, I can't give the bread of life of God my bread of life when you just fed those Jewish community, you know, after this, to unclean Gentiles. But he knew her heart. He knew, I'm sure he knew what she was going to say, and he's doing this for the benefit of the other Jews to get them to understand that he is was going to cross over into the Gentile world. He was going to bring uh, the message to them. He had already done it with the, with the centurion, right? I mean, really, that not that he was healing him spiritually per se, but he's already starting to reach into the Gentile world in many, in many different ways. And so she says, yes, Lord, but, you know, even the dogs eat the scraps from the table. A true heart of humility. I mean, that is beautiful, like the centurion. He was humble. 
He wasn't trying to push an agenda and trying to say he was better than the Jews, which the Romans, of course, really believed they were. Syrophoenicians probably believe that. But she says, no, I'm your servant. You're my master. I'm at your feet. I'm at your table. I'll feed on whatever you give me. Because of that faith, he, he then touches her, makes her well. Such a beautiful story. It is not Jesus being heartless. It is Jesus drawing out the faith of this woman for the benefit of not only of herself, but for the people around her. He will keep the feet of his saints, First Samuel chapter 2 and verse 9. The way is slippery and our feet are feeble, but the Lord will keep our feet if we give ourselves up by obedient faith to be his holy wounds. He will himself be our guardian. Not only will he charge his angels to keep us, but he himself will preserve our going. He will keep our feet from falling so that we do not defile our garments, wound our souls, and cause the enemy to blaspheme. He will keep our feet from wandering so that we do not go into paths of error or ways or folly or courses of the world's wisdom. He will keep our feet from swelling through weariness or blistering because of the roughness and length of the way. He will keep our feet from wounding. Our shoes shall be iron and brass so that even though we tread on the edge of the sword or on deadly serpents, we shall not bleed or be poisoned. He will also pluck our feet out of the nest. We shall not be entangled by the deceit of our malicious and crafty foes. With such a promise as this, let us run without weariness and walk without fear. He who keeps our feet will do it effectually. Praise God. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for again, we read through these things, we understand. We must come humbly before you as we realize you are the God of over all creation, and we have no right to question what you're doing in this world. We instead need to marvel at the grace you've extended and the heart of compassion and the way that you have come to lead us in all righteousness, to feed us, and then to protect us and to shut our feet with the gospel of peace and give us the ability to walk even in difficult times, even when there's danger. And so we thank you. We thank you that you have given us those promises and you will continue to guide us. Bless my brothers and sisters today as they go on about their day. Many of us have a lot of work to do and some of us have uh, times of rest that we need to just spend enjoying family and enjoying being in, in fellowship with brothers and sisters and you. So God bless this day and help us keep our minds upon you to use these words to meditate upon and to be conscious of and to ever get a greater understanding and appreciation for your glory, your greatness, your omnipresence, your omnipotence. And we, we God, would ask that you continue to mold us more and more into your image. Thank you for everyone that is visiting Vallarta, that are coming down, returning. Thank you for the fellowship we have received, the kind letters, so many blessings in so many ways as we see the church growing. Let me continue to grow it as well as this ministry online. And so that we can, again, be faithful in presenting you to the world as the God you are, a loving and caring, passionate and gracious God that has come down to this earth, teaching us that your death will bring us into a time of rest if we would allow it, if we'd come before you and ask for forgiveness. So I pray for that, God. Make us your ambassadors. Help us communicate your love to these people and bless 
this women's conference that will be going on Friday and Saturday and bless the service tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So God bless you all. We'll catch you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. <laughs>